Thank you, Rosie. Well, do keep that open. We'll have a look at that. We're also going to look at the little section after it uh, later in the uh, talk in a few minutes' time, just to close off chapter 12 uh, with a really really positive little section as well. Uh, Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, uh, whom you have sent and given to us. And we pray that we may hear his words and respond with faith and following of him in our hearts this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, 400 years ago this year, someone called Jean-Claude was born in Protestant southwestern France. Those were the days, the 16th, 17th centuries, of great persecution in France of Protestants by then-Catholics. And Protestants, as he grew up, were banned from meeting, gathering in almost all of France, except for a few named cities. There was something called the Edict of Nantes, which meant that there were certain safe places for them to gather. And as he grew up, he became a Christian, and he gave his life to preaching the gospel, Uh, apparently a very gifted, talented preacher. Even his great Catholic opponent, someone called Bossuet, said uh, that Jean-Claude makes the most and the best of a bad cause, meaning the, the Bible and the gospel, of course. But then in 1685, as he was becoming an older man, uh, the Edict of Not was revoked, and it became illegal for Protestants to gather anywhere. And he was given just two weeks to leave the country. And he made his way, uh, as many of what was called the Huguenots did, to places like the Low Countries and to England. And many, of course, came as what we call strangers to Norwich. And he died, actually, in Holland a couple of years later. That story reminds us that although some of the persecution of Christians down the centuries has come from atheism, actually, usually, mostly, most strongly, it often comes from the religious. And that was the case in the life and experience of Jesus, as we've seen in Matthew's Gospel. If you've been here this last week, we've seen that, that growing conflict, the polarization between those that receive Jesus' invitation to come and find rest under his words and those that hated him more and more and wanted him dead. Jesus, in the next little section of Matthew, uh, in his gospel, in Matthew 13, just have a look, you'll see at the bottom of the page there, it's what's called the parable of the sower. He deftly sketches that separation of people and the response to his words in that parable. He says, I'm the sower, I come with the seeds of my words, and some people are like good soil that receives my words, soft-hearted, but others will be hard-hearted, stony ground, or will be careless with my words and won't really hang on to them. And that's the separation of responses that he found in his own words and ministry and that Christians have found ever since. Now, our section today from verse 38 starts with the Pharisees. So these are the the stony-hearted ones in Matthew's Gospel, the religious leaders, in fact. They've just accused him of being in cahoots with the devil. That's quite a strong accusation to make of Jesus, isn't it? And he's uh, defended himself against that. And they come again with with another question in verse 38. Teacher, they say... We want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. And you might think it's reasonable to ask for a sign 
to prove his divine mission. And it would be, wouldn't it? Except uh, it's highly unreasonable, isn't it, to demand a sign now when he's already done many in this gospel before, which they've refused to look at and believe in. So Jesus says, verse 39, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for, or literally there it's demands, a sign. And here's the first point this morning. It's the amazing power of unbelief, this wicked, adulterous generation, as he calls them, the amazing power of unbelief. He says that this generation, these stony-hearted people, and they've been stony-hearted people ever since, he compares their type to the people of God in the Old Testament who had demanded a sign from Moses back in the Exodus. He says, you're like the Old Testament people later that the prophets denounced because you had turned from the one true God to give your hearts, your love to other gods, to idols. The amazing power of unbelief in religious people. That's the fascinating thing, isn't it? The power of unbelief in the religious. Jesus goes on in verse 39, second half. He says, none will be given to this generation, no sign, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, isn't that a remarkably unhelpful sign to give to the Pharisees? They say, give us a sign, we demand it. And he says, you'll get no sign, um, but there will be one in a few months or years when I'm killed and I rise again after three days. So it's, it's way in the future, this sign. And he says, it's like the sign of the prophet Jonah. And again, we don't quite know what that means, but it could mean the sign that, that Jonah preached to people in Nineveh. So they were non-religious people that heard Jonah. They were foreigners. But they repented, they listened. So will you listen? It could be that's, that, that's the sign. People that listen to the prophet. More likely, it's the sign, as Jesus says, of the three days and three nights in the heart of the huge fish that swallowed Jonah, from which he then emerged to go and preach. So it's the sign, if you like, of a, of a resurrected prophet. And Jesus is saying, as Jonah was effectively dead and then raised to preach, so will I be in my resurrection on Easter morning. See the parallel. Jonah, Jesus, three days, three nights, effectively dead. And then after that, preaching, risen from the dead. Slight difference. Um, Jonah merely had a remarkable submarine experience. Jesus had a miraculous resurrection. But you get the point. Jesus is warning those that listen to his words that you're listening to one that God is going to raise, or in fact, in our case, has raised from the dead. So will you listen to this prophet, he says, as the Ninevites, who will stand and condemn you, as the Ninevites listened to Jonah. You get that? See what he's saying? There's the warning. The power of unbelief, it even stops me listening to a resurrected prophet. 
Jesus then brings a, a second, if you like, witness for the prosecution forward. We've seen the Ninevites. Then he brings this Queen of Sheba. Can you see her? She famously visited King Solomon back in the Old Testament to hear God's wisdom through him. And Jesus says, how convicting she will be for you because she came from far away, again from a foreign country, knew nothing of the Bible, and she came to listen to God's wise man, God's king. And he says, because of the power of unbelief, you won't even listen to a greater man, a wiser king than Solomon. So here's a really vital warning, isn't it, for some of us this morning. All of us that attempted to demand from God that he proves himself to me. When we've already seen in the life and the words and the resurrection of Jesus such compelling evidence of his grace and his power and his goodness. How dangerous it is to have a hard heart, a stony ground heart, to the words of Jesus. How dangerous. What a reminder that the Christian faith is is not primarily a faith of the sight, but a faith of the hearing, isn't it? Hearing the words of God's messenger, hearing the seed he's scattering as he is this morning as we open his word, and having, we pray, a soft heart to receive it. Christian faith, you might say, that the most important organ of faith for a Christian is not the eyes, but the ears. That's why I emphasise Bible reading so strongly here at Holy Trinity. That's why we have that bookstore. What a great chance to give some of the words of God to someone else at Christmas so that the seed can fall on soft hearts and do its work. Read our Bibles. Give away books. Maybe there's a challenge here for someone, though, because something in you or in me, perhaps, is demanding that Jesus proves himself to me, puts a sign up on the wall for me that I cannot mistake, and then I'll believe and trust in him. And actually, you and I know, don't we, he's given me compelling witness already in the words of his eyewitness friends in Matthew's Gospel in his resurrection on Easter morning, in the life of his people, in the Christians that I know. And it's not that I can't believe, it's that I will not. I do not wish to. And that's a challenge if that's my heart this morning, isn't it? The power of unbelief. The second story that Rosie read for us just now, is it's a very different one, isn't it? Very different tone. But it does reveal... A similar message, the tragic result of religious formality without a changed heart. The tragic result of religious formality. It's a kind of a folk story, isn't it? Jesus tells in verses 43 to 45, the next little paragraph there. He talks about an evil spirit or an unclean spirit that comes out of a man. Uh, It's almost a kind of witty story, isn't it? He goes out of this man and he discovers life outside the human host is not so nice after all. It's a bit arid, a bit hot and dry out there in the world. Uh, And the spirit begins to hanker after the nice drinks cabinet there was back at home in that that man it left behind. And the sofa and the slippers and the nice warm fire. And so it goes back 
to that man again and finds that he's been swept clean and all tidy and organized. So Kim and Aggie have been in in his absence and done a cleaning job. And he sees all this tiredness. He's, he's an unclean spirit, so he, he hates it. He says, right, we've got to mess this up again. And he brings six more teenager spirits with him to create mess and havoc. Because teenage spirits are good at that. And in they go. And Jesus concludes, tragically, the results at the end are worse than they were before. The last state of the house is worse. He's talking here uh, not primarily about a particular person. It's just a folk story, if you like, a parable. He's talking about his generation again, isn't he? He's talking about the unbelieving religious people who've got the form of religion, but the heart's not changing. He says, you've experienced the ministry of John the Baptist, but you liked him for a bit, but it didn't really change you, did it? You've, You've experienced my ministry, and you're just as resistant in your heart to me as you were to him. Your hearts are not prepared. Your ground is hard to the seeds of God's word. Nothing really changes. In fact, you go from bad to worse. It's a bit like if, you, if you've uh, ever done some gardening like, like we do. You, know, you, you dig the soil, you clear all the plants out, you, you get the mess out, you chuck it away. Uh, and then you forget about it for a few weeks and a few months in our case. And do you know what happens? It doesn't just sit there pristine, clean soil, does it? Have you noticed this? I've noticed this. You come back a few weeks later, and it's full of weeds again, worse than before. The tragic results of religious form without a changed heart. I was reading the story the other day of Christian movements in universities about 100 years ago in this country. There was a, a significant, a very big movement called the Student Christian Movement in those days. It was the biggest movement of Christians in universities. There's also a new fledgling one called the Christian Union Movement that emphasized the gospel and the Bible and Jesus. Uh, And the two explored working together about 100 years ago more closely. But the the first one, the SCM as it was called, was really quite different from the Christian Union Movement. The SCM were not particularly committed to truths like the authority of the Bible or that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, or that he's the unique saviour for the world. They emphasise more and more, in fact, social concern. A good thing in itself, but that became their their real focus. Well, 50 years later, the CU movement had grown enormously and still today uh, reaches thousands of students on campuses across this country. But the SCM had almost died out completely. Jesus challenges us as a generation not to keep religious form, but have our hearts unchanged. Not to have the form without the faith. We've been blessed, haven't we, in this country with tremendous Christian revival in the past, the reformation of the 16th century, revival in the 18th century, great Christian leaders in this city, people like Thomas Bilney, martyred in the 16th century, and people like Elizabeth Fry, a great social Christian 
evangelical reformer in the Victorian days. And we must not allow, must we, as Jesus is teaching us here, the form to survive without the heart. We mustn't allow hatred and greed and racism to take up residence again in the hearts of the church of our people and not to have the heart of faith and love and grace. We pray, don't we, for the government at the moment, for our general election. Let's pray for a government that will lead us. Never mind the politics, the economics. They can't change the hearts of people, can they? They're good and important, but they don't change the heart. We need to pray for faith and godliness to be the driving forces of our nation. So think of our Church of England. Let's pray that the C of E won't lose our first love in this generation. We live in a time when the good news of churches being planted, of new bishops is balanced, even outweighed perhaps, by the bad news of declining churches, of people that are hesitant, that have unorthodox views about the Bible. We need to pray for our church to hold on to faith and not just form, to allow Christ to cleanse our very heart for good. Maybe someone here, just for you personally, You've heard the words of Jesus, you've been around church, you've maybe begun to let go of some bad things and you've put some good things into your life, but actually it's not yet gone into your heart. It's one thing, isn't it, to be cleansed of sin on the outside, but it's another to be filled with grace. And that's what Jesus is talking about. One thing to be released from the indwelling of the evil one, another one to be filled with the Spirit of God. If that's you, beware the tragic result of having outward form but not a changed heart. Come to Christ. Ask him to take up residence and to cleanse you for good. I said we finished with a quick look at that third story. We've seen, haven't we, the, as it were, the, the quite challenging, the negatives about the power of unbelief and the tragic result of outward form. Well, let's have a look at this. Let me just read for you the the last little paragraph. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here, are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See here the glorious privilege of spiritual family. This whole section of Matthew's Gospel, we finish this series today, ends on this wonderful positive note of the family of Jesus. Of course, his, his physical family are outside there, Uh, quite reasonably, you might think, asking to see him. But they interrupt him, it seems, sort of mid-sermon. And you might think, well, how reasonable, you know, can't can't he stop preaching and talk to his family for a moment? Uh, But he knows, of course, his priority is that people need his preaching more than his physical family need his presence right now. People need his 
life-saving medicine to cleanse their hearts, to change their lives. And nothing can stop that vital work. So he replies, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And he looks around the circle and he points to the disciples at the front and he says, these, this is my mother and my brother and my sisters. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, whoever hears my words and puts them into practice, that's our verse for the year, isn't it? Whoever hears my words and puts them into practice, that's my family. Of course, he's not saying that our physical families are not important. Elsewhere, he teaches us we we honor our parents. He shows great love to his mother at the end of John's Gospel. He honors his family, but he's already said in chapter 10 of Matthew, if you hear that a few weeks ago, that loyalty to Jesus does relativize our blood relations. If it's one or the other, we put Jesus first. And of course, positively, wonderfully, he's declaring here the privilege of spiritual family around him. We're not just a school of discipleship as a church. We're the family of Christ. And it's an amazing family, isn't it? It's not just young, it's not just old, it's age-inclusive. Mother, father, brother, sister... It's gender-inclusive, brothers and sisters and mothers. Of course, he only has one father in heaven. And each of us, if we are followers of Christ this morning, in this family, in this privilege, we are intimately related, not only to each other, as brother and sister to each other, but to him, as brother or sister or mother. You see that glorious word in verse 50, whoever. Isn't that a glorious word? Whoever does the will of my Father, whoever hears my words and follows them is my brother and sister and mother. Think of a single mum who joined a church toddler group a few years ago with her twins and she didn't know what to expect. She was very nervous, but she overcame that and she experienced a welcome in the Christian family And she heard the good news of Jesus in that family and it made sense and she came to Christ and she walks with him. Think of Mark, a successful banker whose prayerful wife persuaded him one day to come to a carol service and he heard Christ speak, he came to discover course, he met up for Bible study with someone in the church and he walks with Christ and his family today. John was a pastor who encouraged Christian students to give their lives to serving Christ on the mission field, uh, or in Christian ministry in this country. He got angry letters from those students' parents because they put Christ before what they thought was a successful career and even had death threats from parents at what their children had done in putting Christ first. But what a glorious privilege to belong in this spiritual family. And what about you? Whoever hears my word, says Jesus, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. What a glorious privilege to be a brother, a sister of Christ and of all his people. Maybe you could pray today for someone you know, perhaps someone you're inviting to a carol service, that they will come to Jesus and by faith become a member 
of his family too. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer puts this so well. Uh, He says of this glorious privilege of belonging in the spiritual family of God, he says, I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. And my saviour is my brother. Every Christian is my brother or sister too. He says, say it over and over to yourself. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free, ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is utterly, completely true. We share the Lord's Supper, the communion service this morning. And as we do so in a few minutes, we're doing this as a sign of three things. A sign that by his unique sacrifice... My heart is cleansed for good. Swept clean. We do it as a sign that in him, we are brothers and sisters of each other as well. One family around his table. And we do it as a sign that one day, we'll bow the knee in glory before him, and before the Father's throne, and hear Jesus say, this one also is a brother and a sister of mine. Amen.